As a church, we await with anticipation the celebration of Jesus' first advent, which was 2,000 years ago, while at the same time we wait for his second coming. The readings for this third Sunday in Advent are wrapped around this word joy. And we're going to take a brief trip or journey through these readings this morning. Let's begin with the epistle reading for today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 to 18. Now, in the first half of this chapter, Paul is, is showing us the Christian's response to the promise of Jesus' second coming. And in the second half of the chapter, he concludes his letter by outlining some personal exhortations for how we should wait or how we should live as we wait for this coming of Christ. And he starts with these words, Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. This is a command. Joy, according to Paul, is not an optional frame of mind. Always rejoice, he tells us. Now, how do we accomplish that? We might dare say from past experience that the harder we try to be joyful, the more miserable we become. What are we to do with this command as we move through Advent and into the season of Christmas? A time of year that is often associated with joy. Joy. We see it proclaimed in our decorations. We see it on our Christmas cards that we receive. We hear it in the carols. We began this morning by singing, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. The idea of joy, of course, is a significant part of Christmas. We can play along. But sometimes we don't feel that joyful. I don't know who made this poor guy this sweater. (laughs) He surely doesn't look very joyful. (laughs) He looks like our dog when Anna tries to dress our dog up in a reindeer costume. (laughs) There are people for whom Christmas joy is difficult because of loneliness, grief, Illness, unemployment, estrangement. And being told that they ought to be joyful is not really that helpful. There are people within our congregation this year for whom their difficulties threaten to overwhelm any kind of Christian joy. Some of these difficulties are known to us, and others in our congregation carry their loss or their loneliness in secret. How can we always Be joyful, as Paul tells us to be. Well, our readings for today show us a way to rejoice. They show us a way to rejoice. Now, to rejoice is to be joyful. Let's try to be on the same page for the rest of this morning. Uh, Precisely what are we talking about? What is joy? Joy, it's a feeling of great pleasure and happiness, according to the Oxford Dictionary. And Snoopy seems to be the veritable embodiment of joy. Happiness, pleasure. And yet this definition of joy is remarkably weak compared with the way the word is used in the Bible. In the Bible, joy is connected to grace. We find that in the New Testament where we find that the word joy and grace share the same root. Here's, here's what they look like. I'll give you a little Greek lesson here. Uh, you see the word on the left, Cairo. 
or Cairo is in English, means to rejoice, to be glad. It's a verb. Then we see this noun, kairos, or charis, which means grace or kindness. The root of both words is kar, the word favor. So linguistically, the three words are related. The root is favor. Grace means to be leading towards someone in order to share a favor, a benefit, or to impart something good. Grace means to be showing some kind of favor to someone. And the natural result is the experience of joy. We go from favor to grace to joy. And it's a natural progression. Now, as we look at grace and the way it works throughout the New Testament and the Old as well, we quickly see that grace is neither earned nor deserved. It's based on the loving kindness and mercy of God as we see it revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That is grace. And apart from grace, there is no true joy in the way the New Testament uses the word joy. To rejoice is to experience God's grace, God's favor, and to have our spirits brightened and and made glad because of this grace. Consequently, we can say that joy is a gift. It's not something that we manufacture. Uh, Let me read something to you from um, an old preacher, author. Wendy and I actually invited him to come preach at our wedding, and he said he was too old. Uh, which was a good excuse. He lives on the East Coast. It would have been a trek. He says this, We need to be reminded, too, that joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is man-made. A happy home, a happy marriage, a happy relationship with our friends and within our jobs. We work for these things. And if we're careful and wise and lucky, we can usually achieve them. Happiness is one of the highest achievements of which we are capable And when it is ours, we take credit for it, and properly so. But we never take credit for our moments of joy because we know that they are not man-made and that we are never really responsible for them. They come when they come. They are always sudden and quick and unrepeatable. See, joy comes our way as we embrace the grace of God. Maybe this begins to help us understand how Paul could so boldly say to us, always rejoice. We rejoice not trying to force ourselves to be joyful, but by turning our attention from joy to grace. Now, I want to briefly touch on the two Old Testament readings from today to show you this connection between joy and grace. Turn to Isaiah chapter 61. It's on page 565 in your uh, pew Bibles in front of you. And we're going to begin with the first two verses of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be set free. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come, and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. Now, according to the passage in Luke chapter 2, Jesus says that these words are about him, and that 
in him these words have been fulfilled. He says, the scriptures you've just heard have been fulfilled this very day. The people in Nazareth tried to kill Jesus because they heard him claiming to be the veritable embodiment of divine grace. And they said, that can't be. Now, the rest of Isaiah 61 shows us God's grace, his undeserved kindness or favor, and the joyful, the joyful response to that grace by his people. Listen to these words of grace which God speaks to his people, words of unmerited kindness. Isaiah 61, verses 8 and 9. For I, the Lord, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully reward my people for their suffering and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be recognized and honored among the nations. Everyone will realize that they are a people blessed by God. This is grace, undeserved favor in the very midst of suffering. Even in their suffering, they experience the blessing of God Almighty. It comes to them as a surprise. Now, the people of God naturally respond to this grace with joy. We see it in verse 10. I am overwhelmed with joy in my Lord, my God. For he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. I am like a bridegroom dressed for his wedding or a bride in her jewels. I've been doing weddings for a long time, more, more than 45 years. And I once told Wendy that in all these years, and this is still true, I have never seen an ugly bride. I have seen some near miraculous transformations, I will admit. And, and I know that there are those who work magic with makeup and, and hair stuff, whatever you call that. Um, but that's not the answer for why I've never seen an ugly bride. I've come to the conclusion that there's one word that explains it, and it's the word joy. Joy. A person is surprised by joy. They can hardly believe how fortunate they are to be marrying this person that they are standing in front of God's people to be joined in holy matrimony. And their reaction to that grace, this gift of loving and of being loved and of belonging to a beloved, expresses itself in joy. Isaiah's words in verse 10 state what happens to persons as their eyes are open to see God's grace in their lives. They say with the voice of Isaiah, I am overwhelmed with joy in the Lord my God. This takes us back to the command of Paul to rejoice always. As we see God's grace in our lives, our natural response is joy. We don't make ourselves feel joy. We focus on God's grace to us, and then we experience joy. That's how we keep that command. We look at grace. Now let's move to the psalm for the day. It's Psalm 126. It's on page 473 in your pew Bible. It's a psalm of ascent. It was, uh, the, these psalms of ascent were composed to be sung by worshipers as they were moving up the steps of the mount where the temple was built. These are steps on the south side of Temple Mount in Jerusalem that have been excavated and repaired, mostly repaired, 
And, and these are people who are reading a psalm of ascent as they walk up those steps towards where the temple used to be. Now, there are three joy-filled images in this psalm of ascent, 126. First, there are people returning to their homeland following a long exile. Second, there is the countryside clothed in flowers following a rainstorm after a long period of drought. And third, there's the experience of farmers at harvest. In each, there is the depiction of joy flowing from the experience of God's grace. Steve Bell tells the story about being part of the Grain of Wheat Fellowship over here in Wosley. And um, he heard this scripture read, and as he heard this scripture read in the morning service, he began to hear this tune going through his head. And by the end of that week, he had composed this, this song set to Psalm 126. He set it in a bluegrass style of music. In, in my opinion, if there's any style of music that was designed for the gospel, it's bluegrass. You, you, you can't sing about anything in bluegrass without it sounding happy. And good news is meant to be happy. I'm going to play this for you, and, and I'd like you to follow it in your Bibles that you hopefully have open there to Psalm 126. So you can follow the words that he's singing as he gives us these images of joy. When the Lord brought out the captives, when he set the prisoners free, it was just like in a dream. And our mouths were filled with laughter, and our tongues with songs to sing. Yes, it was just like a dream. And it was sin amongst the nations. Doesn't that make you feel joyful? Well, it does me anyway. Uh, Psalm 126, three images of joy that I want us to consider briefly. The first is that of exiles returning home. Uh, the psalmist sings, when the, when the Lord brought back his exiles to Jerusalem, it was like a dream. We were filled with laughter. We sang for song. The other nations said, what amazing things the Lord has done for them. This is likely a post-exilic psalm written after the Israelites had returned from their exile in Babylon for 70 years. Their defeat at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple seemed very much like the end of the story for Israel. 
The ten northern tribes had already been absorbed by the Assyrian Empire, scattered, dispersed, and there was very little left of the land promised to Abraham and his descendants. And now it was gone, and they knew that it was their own fault. They knew from multiple prophetic voices that this is the consequence of the nation turning away from God, and it was now destroyed. They deserved all that the Babylonians were giving them. But now, after 70 years of exile, God, in his grace, undeserved kindness, was bringing them back home, back to their land. And this undeserved kindness filled with joy. And they said, we were filled with laughter, and we sang for joy. That's the first image of joy, the exiles coming back to their home. The second image is rain in a dry land. Palestine, Israel, uh, the land of the Old Testament is dry almost all the time. Uh, It doesn't rain that often. But when it rains, it's dramatic. Downpours fill ravines, and, and flash floods can become destructive and deadly. That rain in that dry land is dramatic, but it's just the opening act. The next act follows as the land blossoms with new growth. Now, this is not Israel, sadly. This, this is Death Valley, where it rains less than Israel. And this happened in Death Valley after one of those rare rains where the land blossoms. That's the second image that the psalmist gives us of God's grace and our joy. What joy! Restore our fortunes, Lord, as streams renew the desert. What joy! The third image is of that of joyful harvesters. There's a contrast in the psalm between the tears that are shed during the time of planting and the joyful songs of harvest. Those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest. My, my mother grew up on a farm. My wife grew up on a farm. I've only lived in cities my entire life. But I picked up the odd bit of information about farming. A used combine cost, a used one, cost roughly 12 times the price of our car when it was new. My brother-in-law spends more to plant his crop in the spring than we spent on our house. And we have a fairly big house. That's not the worst part of farming. What's the worst part? It's between the planting and the harvest when you wait. And there are things over which you have little control, especially the weather. You can control the the pests a little bit. You can control the disease to some extent. The weather can't do a thing. You wait and you wait. So it's no wonder that when there's a good harvest, there's rejoicing, there's joy. God has given you that which you couldn't do yourself. And there's joy. Finally, let's look at the gospel reading that we heard earlier. Luke chapter 1, 46 to 55. It's Mary's song of praise to God that we heard earlier in the service. And it contains that exact same connection between grace and joy. Mary's been on the receiving end of God's favor, and she responds with joy. We often refer to this as the Magnificat. And this is her song. My soul praises the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked with favor upon his lowly servant. From this day forward, all generations will call me blessed. The Almighty has done great things for me, 
and holy is his name. Joy comes naturally from the experience of God's grace. This kind of joy is intensified, not lessened, when we are living in difficult circumstances and grace comes our way because that joy flows out of what God has done for us. Christmas is a time of joy because it focuses, on, focuses our attention on what God has done for us in and through the incarnation of Jesus. In the person of Jesus, God has entered our world. This is grace. The Lord has done great things for us. In Christmas, we affirm that there is no greater thing accomplished by God in human history than the incarnation, the birth of the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. Now, if you are a person this morning for whom this Christmas season is hard or difficult, and the command to rejoice at first feels absurd, be encouraged. Be encouraged to turn your eyes to the grace of God that meets us even in our suffering. As God leans, as God leans in our direction to show us and give us his favor and his grace. This is not to suggest that when God leans towards us this way that our problems disappear. They don't, most of the time. But we experience Emmanuel, God, with us. And then we rejoice in the gifts of God, especially the gift of his Son. Let me wrap up very rapidly and and draw things together with two very brief thoughts. The title for today's talk is Contagious Joy. The idea is that if you see a joyful person, we naturally want what they have. That's human nature. If you look in a restaurant, somebody's eating something and it looks good and it looks like they're having a great time, you say to the waiter, what's that? I want that. That's give me, bring me that. One of the best gifts that we can offer at Christmas to other people is to be joyful because our attention is focused on our experience of God's grace, not our circumstances. Our attention is focused on our experience of God's grace. And they see our joy. And they think, I think, I think I'd like some of that. Where do, where do they get this joy? Why are they happy? Let us rejoice always that we might be a blessing to others. Here's a quote from Charles Spurgeon, an amazing preacher in his day, saying that Christians should exhibit joy. Those who are beloved of the Lord must be the most happy and joyful person to be found anywhere upon the face of the earth. Have you ever seen an unhappier looking face? Well, you know, in those days, for some reason, there was a law, on, a constitutional law, that you couldn't smile for photographs, uh, so nobody did. Uh, but he was a joyful man, and, and he's saying, let's be joyful because of what God has done for us. Let people look at Christians and say, they're really joyful people. And I hope that you've seen this morning, as we've, we've studied these words, that we don't have to make efforts to contort ourselves into some state of joy. But we do need to train ourselves to have our eyes open to see grace. We might manufacture happiness, but joy comes to us as a response to the grace of God. 
difficulty is that we too often walk around like we have blindfolds on. Blind, and we have to feel our way through life. We, we, we don't see what's going on around us. God shows up in our lives, even. God does great things for us. He leans toward us to offer divine benefits, but we don't recognize the good. Or we blame it on something else. Well, I sure lucked out that time, didn't I? No. Maybe what you really experienced was God's grace entering your life in a dramatic way. Or, boy, I sure pulled that one off, didn't I? Well, maybe not. Maybe God pulled that one off. We chalk up acts of grace to good fortune. We don't see his grace in our lives or the lives of those around us. And, and frankly, we have an enemy who wants us to keep that blindfold on. There, make no mistake about that. We have an enemy who tries to blindfold us. As part of our Advent preparation this Christmas, let us prayerfully Deliberately and prayerfully ask God to open our eyes that we might see his grace. And having prayed, let us begin our journey through our days of Advent and Christmas, looking for signs of divine grace. I I tried to do that a bit this week as I've gotten ready for the sermon. I was going to pick Anna up at her school because we had to be somewhere rapidly and we had a very narrow window And I was separated from her school by the train that goes east-west. And there was a long, slow train. And I'm stuck, and I still have to get on to Waverly from Taylor. And there's a long line of people backed up, and I'm sitting there. You can guess what happened. That car waved me in. Come on in. And I thought, that's grace. That was grace. Don't belittle it, John. That was grace. God did something there for you. Let us look for signs of God's grace that we might rejoice and be glad. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we don't have to somehow take the command of Paul to be joyful as a statement that we have to manufacture joy even when we don't feel happy. Thank you for teaching us that it's by seeing your goodness in our lives that we become joyful. Open our eyes, even going home this afternoon, to see your grace and your goodness, your love, your mercy, your kindness your favor to us, that we might be joyful and that people around us might see our joy, that our joy might be contagious. We ask it in the name of Christ our Savior, who is our gift, the most amazing thing that's ever happened to our world. Amen.